Good morning, everyone. Ken Souter here, and you are listening to Biblically Speaking here on WFYL, 11.80 a.m. this beautiful Wednesday morning. This program is all about telling you, the listener, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In fact, my only agenda is to tell you the truth. The truth is what will set you free, Jesus said. Um, this is not my truth or somebody else's truth, as you hear commonly today, but the truth. Now, I know that's a concept that's hard for people to understand, but there is only one truth, and that is found in the Bible, the Word of God. And I would stick with the King James Bible, by the way, and that's another whole subject, which I won't get off on. But please, stay with the King James Bible. It is reliable. It hasn't been tampered with, and it's a very excellent translation. So you can be confident that what it says is entirely trustworthy. You know, politicians, news reporters, friends, even pastors sometimes have an agenda, a narrative that they want you to follow so that they can bring you under their control. So that's what we're all about today. And I, I want to say that <clears throat> we're coming up, we're going to have a, a special guest again this morning, my, my friend, Dr. Ken Matto. And uh, we're going to be discussing what is a very controversial subject down through the ages in the church. And that is something called the age of accountability. Is there a certain age which someone is morally accountable for his or her decisions? And before that time, they are not morally accountable. Um, and and how does that how does this teaching impact a person's eternal soul, in particular babies and abortion? You know, where do they go? And people who are mentally incapacitated and can't think and make decisions. So, you know, biblically speaking, so infants, do they automatically go to heaven before they become a certain age? Because, you know, they don't have the right, they don't know the right from wrong. Um, you know, this is for for me, a subject that I have really given much thought to, and it really has a lot of implications, a lot of ramifications, I should say, for other doctrines, such as the doctrine of salvation itself. So very important. I want you to stay up for that. We'll be uh, bringing on Ken here in a few more minutes. Um, so you'll you know, not want to miss that uh, just very shortly. But first, I need to discuss probably what has become the hot topic of the day, and that is Black Lives Matter. This has become such a divisive issue, even in the church, between family members and friends. I have a friend, in fact, wrote me this just this morning. Um, he said this, Ken, pray for my 16-year-old daughter, Sierra. I shouldn't mention the name, sorry, who is stubborn, outspoken BLM, Black Lives Matter advocate, and refuses to listen and honor her parents. She thinks I am a bigoted, homophobic racist. We have brought her to church. She spent seven years in Christian school, has professed faith, and was baptized at 13. My experience and over 50 years in Christ means nothing to her. Thank you. God bless you, brother. So what I need to talk to you about this morning is the Black Lives Matters movement, biblically speaking. Okay, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible mention Black Lives Matter? Of course not. No, not specifically. But the Bible can be used to evaluate the movement, any movement, anything whatsoever, 
It's goals and objectives to help us understand if what they believe is true or lies, biblically speaking, according to the standard of God's word, trustworthy and true. If it is something God is pleased with or not, can we do that with certainty and clarity? Is Black Lives Matter a movement a Christian can get involved with and get behind? I'm going to say right here, no, absolutely not. In fact, I will tell you Black Lives Matter is a dangerous anti-Christian cult that you should run away from and take your children with you. In fact, the BLM movement really is not concerned about black people at all. They are using blacks as a tool to greater goal of tearing down Christianity in the West and introducing Marxist communism into this country. I know that sounds pretty radical, but that's what I believe this is all about. It's at its heart anti-God, anti-biblical law, anti-Christ, all dressed up as a civil rights movement. Now, I want you to be reminded of some very important verses in the Bible as we look at this and evaluate this movement. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What that means is that everything that is around you, everything that you encounter every single day, whatever somebody says, whatever somebody tries to convince you of, a narrative, a political movement, whatever it may be, we are to bring it into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Black Lives Matter, it's an anti-Christian, as I said, in, in that it is against God's creative order in terms of male headship, sexuality, the family, and work. It is intolerant of God's social order of the family. It is intolerant of male and female only, and is an intolerant of male headship. It is at war with truth. It is at war with Christ and his kingdom over the earth. You say, wow, where did you get that? I thought it was because someone was killed who, who was black by a police officer. Isn't that what it's all about? Well, actually, if you go to their website, Black Lives Matter, and they do have their statement of belief on there and what they're all about. I would just like to read a few of those quotes just to bring you up to date on what it says. Here's the first one. He says, we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. Transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. Let me remind you, God made us male and female. There's nothing that you can do to change your sex any more than you can change your age or your humanness. We cannot be cats. I, I may think I'm a cat, but I'll never be a cat. Uh, I'm fixed. I am what I am. God assigns our sex at our birth, and that's what it's going to be forever. It's just pure insanity and folly to think that you can change your sex. You may do some uh, surgical procedures and and and, and enhance uh, uh, you know the opposite sex uh, you know features and so forth. However, at the core of it, you're still a male or a female. It's fixed, and you have absolutely no say about it. God made us one of two sexes, as well as the animal world. And I've just searched in the Bible for 
uh, male and female. And I found like 17 references to that. So God makes it very clear. Uh, obviously, Genesis one twenty seven. so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created him, male and female created he them. And then, you know, Jesus also reaffirmed that when he said in Matthew 19, 4, and he answered and said unto them, have you not read? In other words, what I just read you, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? God made them male and female. Jesus, you know, people say all the time, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? Well, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said that there's only male and female. Kind of hard to get around that, isn't it? And also in Mark 10, 6, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Mm -hmm. Jesus' words. Here's the second thing I saw. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. Ooh, men are centered. Well, what does the Bible say about the role of men and women? I will read you here 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 15. It says, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broiled hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh Women professing godliness with good works, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first form, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And then in Ephesians 5.23, we read this. For the woman is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. God has designed male headship, male headship over the family, and I believe male headship over civil society, and that would be uh, politics as well. It's the way he designed it. And here again, I think that um, we are really uncovering the reality of what this movement is all about. It's an attack on the family. It's an attack on the headship, male headship in particular. And if that doesn't get you, here's another quote. We dismantle the patriarchal, patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts, quote unquote, so that they can mother in private, even as they participate in justice work. Okay, here again, I think that this is a saying that is that men are keeping women so busy at home that they cannot participate in public justice work. Patriarchal practice? Again, the Bible is very clearly teaches that a woman's primary responsibility is the management of her home. Where do you get that from, Ken? Titus 2.5. Speaking of women, to be discreet. Chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That's what God said. I didn't say it. If you have a problem with it, you take it up with God. But being a homemaker is a full-time job. Read Proverbs 31 to see all that the things a godly woman is doing to care for her husband and her home. You know, it's interesting to note 
that the husband is mentioned as being known as in being known in the gates in that Proverbs 31 chapter. When he sitteth among the elders of the land, it says it, her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. Adam Clark, in his commentary, said this. He says, she is a loving wife and feels for the respectability and honor of her husband. He is an elder among his people, and he sits as a magistrate, that's a politician, modern-day language, in the gate. Although I like the word magistrate better. Um, he is respected not only on account of the neatness and cleanliness of his person and dress, but because he is the husband of a woman who is justly held in universal esteem. And her complete management of household affairs gives him full leisure to devote himself to the civil interests of the community. Here again, God's featuring men as leading in the civil interests of the community. Ellicott commentary also says this, her husband is known in the gates. Instead of being a hindrance to her husband's advancement, she furthers it. Her influence for good extends to him also. Having no domestic anxieties, he is set free to do his part in public life. Next quote, number three, out of their website, their own website. This is what it says. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. You ever hear, remember Hillary Clinton? It takes a village. <laughs> that collectively, that's an interesting word, collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable what is the nuclear family structure that they wish to disrupt? Could it be the one God created from the beginning of time and has for thousands of years been defined as one man, one woman for a lifetime? I thought this was about Black Lives Matter. The worst thing you can do for the black community is disrupt the family. That's the best thing you can do is to encourage families, stability for children. For marriages, all these things are really what we should be working for. The left needs to destabilize the family if they are ever hoped to make the state our God. But the state doesn't make a very good God, does it? God created three spheres of authority, the state, the church, and the family. And the state has an insatiable desire to rule all three. Be careful of that. Number four, and I'm coming to a close here. Very shortly, we foster a queer affirming network. Hmm. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she or they disclose otherwise. This is right off their website. I thought it was about black lives. Freeing ourselves from the tight grip. This reminds me of Psalm 2, verse 3, where it says, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Pulpit commentary says this about that verse. Wicked men always feel God's rule and his law to be restraints. They chafe at them, fret against them, and in the last resort, so far as their will goes, wholly throw them off and cast away their cords from us. Bands and cords are the fetters that restrain prisoners. The rebels determined to burst them and assert their absolute freedom. 
But how does God see this effort of casting off God's laws? Verse 4, Psalm 2, verse 4 says this, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. You see, this is all so foolish. God is laughing at this attempt. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The pulpit commentary says this, God laughs at the vain and futile efforts of man to escape from the control of his laws and throw off his dominion, which is what they're trying to do. It is impossible that these efforts should succeed. Man must obey God willingly or else unwillingly. The Lord, the Lord shall have them in derision. And that means laughter and derision are, of course, the same. Uh, is an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. It's a big word. <laughs> it is meant that God views with contempt and scorn man's weak attempts at rebellion. So Black Lives Matter is not what it appears to be. It has a veneer of righteousness, which all Christians should agree with. Yes, that black lives do indeed matter. But in the kingdom of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. And I could put in there, there's neither black or white, yellow or red. Uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God sees all as being equal. And so does our, our, uh, our country. Liberty and justice for all. There should be justice for all. Everybody should have the same justice, no matter what color you are. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen and mar and and no marble for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Beware, folks. Black Lives Matter is more than just a civil rights group. When you peel away the skin, you will see a radical, anti-family, anti-God, anti-Christian movement. I am going to bring in my guest at this point, Dr. Ken Maddow, a very familiar voice on Biblically Speaking. Ken, any comments on that before we get into the subject at hand that you have brought to us this evening? Yeah, you know, it was Ronald Reagan who said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream, it must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. One of the problems that uh, movements like Black Lives Matter and Antifa is that most of these that are heading up these organizations have been schooled in the public schools. Communism uh, has been taught in, in your universities, in the high schools, the junior highs, the education, like the, like the National Education Association, no longer teaches true history. They now are agenda-based. you got the sodomites coming in, uh, transgenderism, all of this nonsense coming in, and they're diverting the uh, minds of the children away from truth. And that's one of the biggest problems we're seeing. 
um, as like we were speaking about before, that uh, when I was growing up, I never in my uh, would even think of ever walking up to a police officer and calling him every name in the book. I would be arrested, and then when I got home, I would get it again. But movements like Black Lives Matter Antifa are just window dressing. What they are is the basis for a Marxist takeover of the United States. If there's one thing that Satan hates, it's the fact that the United States, that, that, that there are still many Christians in the United States, are still getting the gospel out. But there's going to come a time uh, in our history when they, as it says, I believe Matthew 24, I'm not sure, but it says where they kill you and they think they're doing God's work. And this is what's happening now in the streets. The streets are no longer safe for anybody. It doesn't matter whether you're white, black, Indian, um, Chinese, Japanese, it doesn't matter anymore. They will attack everybody and anybody. This is exactly, uh, it's almost like a, like Kristallnacht in Nazi Germany in 1938. Oh, yeah. When they were breaking all the windows. We saw that already on the day that uh, Donald Trump was inaugurated. We see all the window breaking, people getting attacked. I mean, when they start attacking 70-year-old uh, men who are walking with walkers, these, these children are being led uh, are so astray. But then again, too, they're culpable because they're allowing themselves. They're not using their heads, and they're allowing themselves to be, to be used. Now, it was uh, Lenin who said that intellectuals are useful idiots for the cause of world revolution. And he was absolutely right. And we're seeing that come to pass in our universities. Children go in, or rather high school graduates go into colleges and they want to become doctors, they want to become lawyers. But by the time they get done, all they are anarchists and they, they hate America. And yet most of these people that hate America, that are leading these movements, are multimillionaires. And that's, that's where I think it's so ridiculous. They're, they're living off the fat of the land. They're living, living off uh, capitalism. And then they want to bring in Marxism. Don't they realize that once they bring in the Marxist government, that all of their wealth will be taken? And that's the same with these actors and actresses in Hollywood. Once, once communism comes in, there's going to be no such thing as private property. Those gated communities, the gates are going to be removed. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen to this nation. If, if they think that uh, they're going to be exempt from uh, full Marxism, I've got bad news for them. Uh, if they resist, they're going to be in the camps like everybody else, and everything that they own will be taken and will be yeah. and will be given to the government. Yeah, I, I do believe you're absolutely correct. Uh, it's it's all pushing towards that big way, and I do think Antifa and even the COVID nineteen, all that sort of is all playing together in this. Um, beginning to lock down people, getting them used to taking government orders, putting fear in their hearts, daily death counts. Um, you know, it's just. 
I just cannot believe. And you talk about useful idiots. How about all the pastors that are jumping on board with this? There's churches falling right and left to the Black Lives Movement and, you know, flying the flag and, and kissing feet and washing feet. And uh, even the owner of Chick-fil-A, uh, you know, said we need to, you know, bow to, essentially bow down and worship black people. I didn't say that, but very close to it. You know, and I, I think that's what's 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 really happening here. It's a cult. It's another movement. And if you don't bow the knee to it, you're going to you're going to suffer for it. I think you're going to we're going to have to make a decision where we really stand. But useful idiots, even in the church. Exactly. That's that's one of the biggest problems. And uh, I remember back in the 1980s and 90s that when FEMA was first formed, over 20,000 pastors became um agents of fema so uh, they were they were um taken into fema so this way they say when emergencies come they can calm the people and give them encouragement and everything but fema's got camps all over this country and has nothing to do with comforting people it has to do with with getting people to obey the state when you are a 501c3 um, church, you are a you are a corporation, which is a ward of the state. You are a state church, and uh, and uh, that's what most yeah. pastors don't understand. Yeah. If probably the greatest thing that could happen to the church is to lose their tax exempt status, yeah. because then there's absolutely nothing to right. stop the church from really thundering forth the truth. Of right. course, once they would fire the the pastors that are that are taking these churches down the tubes and get some real guts in the pulpit, that's what we need nowadays. Not any more of these wimps uh, right. uh, who, who want us to kowtow to everything. All these pietists mm -hmm. and everything, you know. Oh, just just preach the gospel. Don't get involved. Baloney. Right. I mean, uh, was the apostle Paul uh, beheaded because he didn't get involved? Was John the Baptist? Uh, beheaded because he didn't get involved was how the martyrs in the, in the middle ages, uh, Ridley guys like Nicholas Ridley, were they burned at the stake because they didn't get involved? No, they got involved. Right. And that's what the, and that's what the, uh, churches have to do today. There has to be a strengthening of the churches and they've got to put the faith in the Lord. Most of them put their faith in themselves. Mm. And that's, that's one of the biggest problems. The pastor did not die for your sins. Christ did. And if the pastor can't do the job, get rid of him. Let him go out and work for a living and see uh, and, and let him live among the people and see exactly uh, what's going on. Because too many of them use the pulpit as a buffer and mm -hmm. then they're not steeped in reality. And that's one mm -hmm. of the biggest problems we have in the church today. Right. Let me just read this in closing out this segment here, and then we'll get into the uh, the matter that we have before us in the second half here, and that is uh, the age of accountability, which is a fascinating. You ever hear of E.V. Hill? Oh, yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Here's a quote from him. Now, he he's he's gone. He's deceased. And uh, I think he was uh, he died. Uh, oh, let me see here. Just for your information, he died in uh, 2003 at age 69. He was a pastor out in, in I believe, uh, uh, California and uh, Los, very Angeles. Los Angeles, uh, Free Will, Friendly Will, uh, Free Will, Friendly Will Missionary Baptist Church and and uh, Mount 
So anyway, he is a very influential black pastor. And this is what he said. He says, Pastor E.V. Hill used to tell of a time he received a death threat from the Black Panthers because they didn't like his preaching about the white Jesus. This was his reply. I don't know anything about a white Christ. I know about Christ, a savior named Jesus. I don't know what color he is. He was born in Brown Asia. He fled to black Africa and he was in heaven before the gospel got to white Europe. So I don't know what color he is. I do know one thing. If you bow at the altar with color on your mind and get up with color on your mind, go back again and keep going back until you no longer look at his color, but at his greatness and his power, his power to save. You know, I, I remember one one time listening to Evie Hill speak on Jerry Falwell's old time gospel hour. And he got up there and he made a great point. And then he gets up there and he says, Okay, you can say amen. Then he says, See, you got to tell white folk when to say amen. So <laughs> <laughs> So he was he he was good. I, I used to enjoy listening to him. Yeah, very, very powerful preacher and uh, yeah. boy, with the God. And, you know, not all blacks are on board with with the Black Lives Matter. And uh, that's a good thing. And I think as we get the truth out there more and more, um, you know, I'm not a racist, basically. I mean, I I would I would prefer to have nine Clarence Thomases on the Supreme Court than nine Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's not not a matter of black and white for me. It's a bladder, matter of right and wrong. A matter of freedom and slavery. Okay. That's oh, it, it is. You're right, Ken. Uh, I remember growing up in the 1970s. Um, I used to play basketball in the uh, quote um, worst part of town in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And we used to have blacks, we used to have Latinos. We had everybody. We were all friends. We didn't even know anything about prejudice until the until the news media started telling us how to be prejudiced. Right. Right. Honestly, I, I I don't I I'm not a racist. We I go to a church that has blacks in it. We sit in, behind them. We you know we we mingle and and we have lots in common. I, I I'm not a racist. I think they're just stirring the the pot. But anyway, let's finish out. I want to really talk about this topic of you know uh, what is it that we're talking about here? You uh, know, the age know, of accountability. Age of accountability. Senior you know, moment, so, huh? Yeah, I am. <laughs> But that has, I've been thinking about that a lot lately in regards to different things, baptism and, you know, when somebody becomes saved and all this and that and the other thing. And uh, I asked you to come on this show because I know you had done some research on this. I'm really anxious to hear about that and maybe pick your brain on some of these things. But I think it really has a tremendous impact on, on so many other doctrines, does it not? Oh, it does. It does. It, de- it definitely does. They're all there. There's a linking uh, when you teach a certain doctrine, there's always a link to other doctrines all the time. They don't, they never stand alone. Mm. Which is called systematic theology, right? It's like a puzzle. If you get it right, right, it all comes together and it makes sense. And it's a rational thing. It's not like a haphazard uh, thing. There is there is order and there's a beauty to it uh, once we understand and puzzle with these things. And it does take a lot of wrestling, as we said before the show. If you just look at the surface of understanding, you're going to come to wrong conclusions almost always. And that's why the Word of God tells us to study, to study. And um, so anyway, 
Why don't you lead off there, Ken, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see where it goes. Okay. The age of accountability. First of all, let me just give a definition. The age of accountability stems from the belief within the doctrine of imputation. Now, the doctrine of imputation can be taken two ways, uh, imputed sin um, or imputed salvation, like uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ on a true believer. And uh, a child that's born is imputed with the father's sinful nature. Okay, so doctrine of imputation, and that's one of the first ones that uh, comes into contact with the age of accountability, okay, is that a young child is covered by the blood of Christ until they reach a certain age in which understanding takes place concerning sin. Uh, Basically, the difference between right and wrong. Until they reach that age, if the child dies, they immediately go into the presence of the Lord. Now, the age of accountability is also built upon the emotionally based belief that a loving God would not send anyone to hell without the opportunity to accept or reject Christ. And then the age of accountability is also said to differ with the academic abilities of each individual child to be able to understand the teachings of scripture. So then they can, they can make that informed decision. Now, uh, when we look at the age of accountability, we look at specific ages, okay? Now, the Jews set the age of accountability at 13, which would be at their bar or bat mitzvah. Reformed Judaism sets it at 16 or 18 years old, okay? Uh, many Christians place it between the ages of 6 to 13. And I heard this on the radio with J. Vernon McGee, who believed it was 20 years old believing a person is in full adulthood at 21 and then responsible. Now, in all these ages, which are set by differing opinions and theologies, one thing remains the same, and that is each group is basically stating that sin is free and without consequence up until whatever age is determined by whatever religious belief. You know, set your own theology. Now, Christianity has no specific age in mind to this, because many believe that children mature at different ages according to their upbringing. Okay, now, just think of what J. Vernon McGee says. Apply that belief system to what is happening in our country today. We were just talking about that. Uh, A teenage kid who loots, steals, destroys, hurts another person, and rebels, and partakes in other evil activities is still under the blood of Christ, okay? Basically, it's saying that you and I are obedient to Christ, but some kid who burns down a city goes to heaven with the same privileges. I mean, you know, when you think about that, it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, I'm going to make a connection here. I don't think that anybody else has ever done this, but this just this afternoon, I was looking at this. There is no such thing as an age indulgence, which is what the age of accountability is. It is basically a Protestant indulgence. Luther vehemently had opposed uh, indulgences because they were nothing but money makers for Rome and were based on total fabrications. That's why he wanted to do away with Ketzel. So an indulgence was basically a free pass to sin, which was, which is exactly what the age of accountability really is. Okay, in the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, an indulgence it was a way to reduce the amount of punishment, especially if someone went to purgatory. For a couple thousand years, it would reduce the amount of punishment they had to undergo for sin. But in the age of accountability, the child 
has no punishment for sins. So basically, what's being taught from the pulpits by saying an age of accountability is that you have a, you have a license to sin if you want. That's what's dangerous about that. Because it's because those kids out in the streets today think they're doing right. They don't know the difference between right and wrong because they've never been taught. So automatically, does that mean they're under the blood? And the answer is no. They're not under the blood. They're, they're just they're just God is readying this world for for judgment, and they're building up judgment for themselves. Now, when you get a system like the age of accountability, you have to ask a question about a person who has a learning disability. First of all, they are immediately disqualified in this belief system because they may never understand the difference between good and bad. Now, another question. You see, this is the problem is false doctrines always gender more questions than answers. The question then remains, will God keep them under the blood for their entire life since they are incapable of understanding or will they forever be lost because they cannot, quote, accept the Lord? Now, the answer to that dilemma is found in, in, in two reasons based upon Scripture. First, no human is ever granted salvation based on their physical handicaps. And secondly, this type of salvation plan is nowhere taught in Scripture. The only salvation plan in Scripture is applied grace, and God is the one who applies it to his elect. So if it's not taught in scripture, we cannot add our own ideas and teach it as doctrine. You know, when we begin to espouse free will doctrines, we must actually create peripheral doctrines to sustain the main idea. And the sad fact remains in, any, in effect for any kind of created doctrine. Now, um, the age of accountability is an extremely popular teaching among many famous evangelists and pastors. <clears throat> Many denominational and non-denominational churches have accepted this unbiblical doctrine as fast as fact. So when in essence there is not one bit of scripture to support it. Now, I don't want to venture too deeply into free will in this study, but the age of accountability is a child of this doctrine. Mm. It puts man as the captain of his own salvation, uh, which is not taught in scripture either. Now, the age of accountability descends from the first point of Arminianism which states free will of man to accept or reject Christ. So to make created doctrine acceptable, it must have reference to the Bible somewhere. So let's look at some scriptures which seem to support the doctrine of the age of accountability. Probably one of the, uh, one of the most um, strongest uh, arguments the uh, age of accountability people have is found in 2 Samuel 12, 13 to 23, but we'll only read the last two verses uh, for brevity. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Okay. As you probably know, this section of scripture deals with the death of David's son as a result of the adulterous sin of David and Bathsheba. David pleaded with God to please spare the life of the child. But God's judgment was firm, could not be reversed. So the child eventually died, which caused David to cease mourning, and he cleaned himself up, and, and 
bewildered those around him. They wanted, wanted to know why. Then we come to verse 23 where it says um, that I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Okay, if we isolate this verse in its context, we can easily make it say what we want it to, but we cannot and will not. If you read the entire passage of Scripture, you will see that it plainly deals with God's judgment on sin. And God is not a respecter of persons. All who sin will face judgment. Now, it's two things, basically, that this, that this passage reveals. First, David will someday die as his child did. The child will not return to him, but he will go to the child. If you read that section of scripture, you'll see that the, um, the whole context deals with the death of the child. And it's, David says he's united, basically, with the child and the fact of death, which all humans must face. When David was dying, he said, I, I go the way of all the earth. And that's exactly what, what happens to all of us. And then secondly, is that the child was truly saved and went to be with the Lord, and David would someday follow him as he goes into the presence of Christ upon the moment of his physical death. Now, nowhere in this passage or anywhere in the Bible is there a teaching that all children are under the blood of Christ. If this child was truly saved, it does not mean every single child is saved. Okay? So... The only ones under the blood of Christ are those whom God has chosen before the foundations of the world. As we read in Ephesians 1.4, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And let me ask you something right there, Ken. Everyone that has been chosen is going to eventually be glorified, justified, as it says in Romans not one will be lost, correct? That's correct. Because that's why there's so many things uh, happening right now that we have to live through. And one of the great things is, is that God is continuing to save his elect, his elect, even in the midst of all these problems. Mm-hmm. In Revelation 13, 8, it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundations of the world. That means those who are disobedient are not written in the book of life. That means there are people who are written in the book of life. And, mm-hmm. you know, they sing that hymn, there's a new name written down in glory. There's no new names written down in glory. Right now, God is just fulfilling his promise to save those he's named before the foundations of the world. Right. So, okay, in Luke 18, 15 to 17. All right, this is this is a big passage because... Uh, so many people look to this as proof. Uh, it says, and they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Now, next, in verse 17, is very important. It explains the other two. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, in no wise enter therein. Okay? Mm -hmm. So you see that the Lord Jesus loved to tell stories to children. And no doubt they they were attracted to him. But the verse 16 states that the kingdom of God contains little children. 
Now, if we were to isolate this verse, we could safely say, hey, that's right, children are in the kingdom of God, meaning they're all saved. But what did Jesus say to Nicodemus in John 3, 3? No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So let's look at the, at the term children, how, how it's used in the scriptures. In Ephesians 5, 1, okay, it says, Be their followers of God as their children. And it, it says in verse 17, Luke, Luke 18, 17, as a little child. So we see there's harmony there. In other words, Christ is making a statement of humility to every believer that they must have the faith of a child because children are very trusting and will believe what they're told. Uh, you know, and, and then when they grow up, they'll burn cities. But this is how the true believer is to receive the things of God. We are to believe God with simple trust and childlike faith, but we can only believe him after we are saved. Okay, now we look at some scriptures here. The Christians are referred to as the children of God in many places in the Bible. Now, here's Jesus speaking to his disciples, Matthew 18, 3, and says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus speaking to his disciples again, John 13, 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, okay? Then Paul speaks to the Galatians Christians. My little children, of whom I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. Then John speaks to the believers. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Okay? And then Jesus speaking to the Sadducees. Neither can they die anymore, speaking about the believers, for they are equal unto the angels. They are the children of God and the children of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So, you see, the term children does not mean that children themselves are in the kingdom unless they're the elect of God. And this is what the scriptures opens up to us. So, you know, if we we force that view, the age of accountability on these verses, we would be guilty of eisegesis, which is putting ideas into the text which do not belong there. So it is right now we can see that the age of accountability is a created doctrine with no biblical foundation. Mm -hmm. Now, here, here's another important aspect. At what age do we become sinners? Does the Bible reveal at yes. what age... That uh, we are considered sinners by God. Psalm fifty-one. Yes. Huh? Psalm fifty-one. Uh, Psalm fifty-one is one of them. Psalm fifty-eight is the other one. I, yep. Okay. Now we must accept the biblical fact that the uh, that sin was imputed to every believer. In Romans three ten to twelve, it says, "Is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, not one." And then in verse 12, it says, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, not one. The term not one in the Greek is in the cardinal form, meaning a specific number, uh, in contrast to an ordinal form, which would be uh, first, second, third. But this one is saying not one, not one single person. Now, let's ask the question, are children a part of the human race? Yes. And yes, they are. And that means not one. 
So uh, how are we doing on time? Uh, we have about uh, 12 minutes to go. Okay. Um, yeah. And we can right, get now, back. We, don't feel rushed. I mean, we can continue in, in another show. But just can I just yeah. give you one verse here while, while you're on the roll here? Yes, yes. You know, talk about imputation, that we were imputed in sin from our very birth. Why can't we be imputed with righteousness from our birth? 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So you have the imputation of sin in Adam from birth. You could have the imputation of righteousness from birth in Christ. It's just the same principle, except we're not talking about sin. We're talking about righteousness. Exactly. I'm going to give two examples of that um, and how righteousness was imputed. Okay. Yes. Now, in, in Psalm 58, 3 and 4, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the death adder that stoppeth her ear. Okay. What is this verse telling us? Plainly telling us that we go speaking lies right from the moment of birth. Let me ask you something. When you were young, who taught you to lie to your parents? No mm. one did, right? No. No, no, because it's indwelt sin in us. And the word of strange actually means as to turn aside, which means as soon as we are born, we turn away from God because Revelation 21, 27 states that no liar will enter the kingdom of God. So God is showing us that there is evil from the moment of birth. Since there is evil from the moment of birth, how can this person be considered saved up to a certain age? And they can't. God is making it clear that all are under condemnation unless they are saved. Now, Amen. Yeah. Now, let's, now we're going to take another look at another verse. Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, in this verse, David is speaking of his own birth as sin-cursed. Okay, now David's mother and father were married, so what sin is he speaking of? The sin he is speaking of is the imputed sin of Adam. David knew every human being was born with indwelling sin, and he states that he was sinful at birth and sinful while still in the womb. Okay, now David was probably saved at an early age. Um, okay, so his birth is typical of every human being. We're born under sin, not under the blood of Christ, up to a certain age. Now, you had mentioned the, the imputation of righteousness. Jeremiah, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Mm. Now, okay, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. So he knew, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And then John the Baptist, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and neither and shall not shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And I then, of course, that. the Apostle Paul. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Yeah. So you see. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. You, you, I was just uh, agreeing with you there. I, oh, and okay. I, eventually, we only have, uh, oh, about eight or nine minutes left. I want to get to the idea that, um, you know, why this is such a repulsive doctrine to the Arminians and free willers and all that. You know, why, why they insist on, you know, an age of accountability. Why is that such a cornerstone to their heresy, really? 
Well, it has to do with the idea of, of, of man being born with the, with the free will, the ability to, to choose, uh, right? To choose, right. But you see, the bottom line says, the, the scriptures teach that we are born spiritually dead, and a dead person can't do anything. A person, a dead, Lazarus couldn't raise himself. The Lord Jesus had to stand outside the tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. And that's what he does to each of us. Um, Ken, come forth. Joe, come forth. Helen, come forth. And, and that's what happens. We are, we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, in 1 Samuel 15, 3, we have, a ver- we have a verse that very rarely you'll ever hear, okay? And it says, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling. That's babies, ox and sheep. Here is God giving the command to Saul to utterly destroy all the Amalekites. And notice he includes the babies and the children. Mm-hmm. Now, is God being cruel? Of course not. God knows the beginning from the end, and if any of these ungodly children survive, they will grow up to become Amalekites and continue in the evil traditions of their fathers, which, mm-hmm. of course, would be false religion. Right. Uh, and that's, that's what will happen. So God is giving us a principle that unless a child is one of God's elect, they will be hell-bound via false religions and philosophies, even if they, become, even if they are, live and go to 90 years old. They can, they will not, if they're not the elect, if they're not named before the foundations, they will just go into, uh, into hell. Okay. And that's it. Now, let's come to the biggie. Aborted babies. Okay. Since our country allows wholesale slaughter of unborn babies, the question has arisen as to where have all the aborted babies gone? Well, the pat answer, which is given, is they all went to heaven. Right. That's what they said. Unfortunately, well, that would be nice. It is a deceitful answer. The biblical truth on this matter is is that if any of the aborted babies were God's elect, they went into the presence of the Lord. If they were not God's elect, then they are awaiting judgment in a place of silence. Okay? And then... If the baby is not God's elect, they would not become saving to grow up to be 90 years old, like I said before. And that also applies to a baby that causes, uh, that dies of natural causes. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Now, this is going to be a controversial statement, but it has to be included. If they are not elect, they will be raised on judgment day to face the judgment. Okay? Now, if every aborted baby goes to heaven, then that would make abortion the greatest evangelistic method, one mm-hmm. for one. It mm-hmm. would mean that parents should abort every baby, and that would mean they would go to heaven. Now, the problem is that abortion is murder. Murder is not an evangelistic method. It is heinous sin. Okay? You see the problems we get into when we try and create doctrines uh, where there are none? Here, can I, I say mean, something it, here? If, yeah, if a ahead. baby automatically goes to heaven, at what point, if there's an age of accountability, then they flip over from one day they're going to heaven and the next day, whatever that age may be, it's up to them. So isn't yeah. that crazy too? I mean, just think about that. It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Uh, the idea that uh, a spiritually dead person can yeah. accept or reject 
is just not found in scripture. No. And I think one of the biggest problems is, is that Christians need to come back to the Bible. They must become biblicists. They cannot be slaves to these theological systems anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different theological systems out there. And and they don't allow the Christians to think beyond the the walls or, or, or of those of those theological systems. For example, a a pre-tribulationist would not be allowed to include in their belief system the six times in John where Jesus says, I will raise him up at the last day. That does not fit good with the, oh, this is uh, pre-tribulationalism. They believe the theological systems instead of believing the Bible. Christianity has turned away from the Bible. And maybe all these things that are happening to us is, the, is that people need to get back to the Bible and the true Bible, not the New Living Translation, the NIV, the ESV, all those counterfeits. They need to get back to God's holy word. Most Christians text. don't know that the King James Bible mm-hmm. is really bathed in blood mm-hmm. of the you martyrs. And uh, they don't realize that how many gave their lives for the King James. Yeah, they call us King James nuts only because they have no concept of reality. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, too many are, are walking around with the belief that, oh, my NIV is just as good or my ESV is just as good. In the ESV alone, I could, I could show you where it talks about where, where Roman Catholicism is as plain as ever. Take an ESV and go to Matthew 12, 4. And it talks about the showbread, but in the ESV, it says the bread of the present. That's transubstantiation. And yeah. it's listed 11 times in the, uh, in the ESV. Yeah. So why would, uh, why would any true Bible-believing Christian want to take any scriptures, or, or rather, let me put it this way, any counterfeit scriptures from an organization that has the blood of millions of true Christians on their hands. Yeah. Well, we live in a culture and a country that likes to have it their way. I call it the Burger King Bible. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, somebody out there will tailor one that 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 you can understand. And it's uh, from my from my perspective. And we're running out of time. We really have to move off now. But it is a lie from hell. It is a lie from hell. But anyway, Ken, thank you. God bless. Thank you so much for coming on again today. It's really been a wonderful experience. And I hope that uh, we've opened up the scriptures and challenged people to think about, I think the most important thing of all this is salvation is of the Lord. And, you know, it says in Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Every single step of the way, everyone who was predestinated, whom God foreknew from the foundation of the world, will be saved. This doesn't say anything in there about age at all. So I want to thank you, Ken, for coming on today. We'll have You're you on again. come on again in a couple, couple weeks. And uh, to you who are listening today, we appreciate and thank you for listening. This is Ken Souter from Biblically Speaking. WFYL 1180 AM. God bless and have a wonderful day.